Welcome to the Money Insights Podcast, where high income earners come to learn wealth building strategies that will take them from high income to high net worth. With your hosts, financial and wealth building experts, Christian Allen and Rod Zabriskie. Welcome into today's episode of the Money Insights Podcast. We talk all things money and business. I'm Christian Allen. I'm with my co host. You know him as Rod the Pod Zabriskie. What's up, man? Hey, I'm doing great. Fresh off of a, a trip. I, I, a couple months ago, I mentioned my son uh, joined the Army. And he finished basic training so everybody can rest at ease. He made it. Uh, anyway, we went out there for his graduation and then got him delivered to his next spot where he's going to learn how to be a tank mechanic. So now All he's right. in Georgia. Very cool. Okay, congratulations to which one of your kids is it? I forget. Spencer's. Congratulations, Spencer. If you ever listen to this, um, I apologize for forgetting your name. Okay, Rod. So today we brought on John Austinson. He's the CEO of Franbridge Consulting to talk about non-food franchising, Mm -hmm. which as we occasionally talk about, we have some experience in non-food franchising. Um, only one, let, let me be clear. We don't have experience in a general non-food franchising group. We have experience with one day spa and to be totally honest, Rod, it was not a very good experience. No, but what I do remember though, when we were considering it, one of the criteria that you had is you weren't interested in food. So that was, yeah. Okay. So at least John and I were on the same page on that. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Food. The idea of food just seemed like way too much. Although, can I just tell you what we did? Um, there was way too much in that too. And I just didn't know it going in. Yeah. So, so, okay. Um, but this was an interesting conversation. I wanted to bring John on. He reached out, his team reached out and, um, I thought it was a good time to have a franchising conversation because so many of the real estate deals are just not there, right? Mm -hmm. It's not as easy to find, you know, passive syndication deals to throw money at. Uh, Now, again, this isn't a totally passive thing either, but it's one more thing that people could be considering. And Rod, it goes in line with some of our money hacks, right? Our high income money hacks, number one, which is business owners get all the breaks. So we thought, okay, if you're somebody who potentially wants to look at the investing side of franchising this is a good opportunity to have that conversation and get a feel for it um and of course there are some really strong benefits like the fact that you're owning a business so anyway for that reason that's kind of why i thought john would be a good guest for us and i thought he did a good job of bridging over to a lot of the people that that are listening because i mean let's face it a lot a lot of our people are not looking for another full-time job and the good news is you don't have to take on a full-time job with a franchise, even though you need to plan on having some involvement. He gets into more detail on this. Um, He's had really good success with high income medical and attorneys and and other professionals like that, that, uh, that have been able to see some really good success with their franchises. I thought he was relatively fair about the necessary time requirements, right? Basically, if you think it's going to be five, it's going to be 15 type of thing. Mm -hmm. And that was our experience. So I, I can see, so if you are going into that, like, I think going in with a realistic view, it seems like, uh, John wants to make sure that people understand the good and the bad, um, and make sure that he's fitting people that, that make sense with franchises. Okay. Rod, before we jump into the actual interview, just to give us a little bit of John's background and then we'll, we'll bring him in. Yeah. So John, uh, started out 
in in the franchise business. So he specifically Shelf Genie is the franchise mm-hmm. that he was in um, as a franchisor. Got a lot of good experience there, uh, seeing basically all sides of it. And then uh, more recently started up Fran Bridge, uh, which is uh, franchise consultants for people who are, who are wanting to get in. He said he represents 600 different franchises uh, that he can bring to the table and and he walks through the process, but it's a very methodical way that, that he helps people to see uh, realistically what, what is good for them in their local area. And he's kind of the matchmaker in that way. Yeah. So he's the franchise broker. And can I just say, if, if I was to do it again, I would make sure I was working with a very good franchise broker. If I was going to be interested in franchising again, right? Because one of the challenges that we made or one of the mistakes we made is we we're talking to a general business broker who didn't necessarily specialize and have a lot of experience in franchises. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, for a lot of reasons, if you're going into the franchise space, going into it with a reputable franchise broker makes a lot more sense than trying to kind of do it alone. Even though of course their, their goal is to sell, you know, to sell you on that, franchise but but i think the the reason it's so valuable to have a broker there is that they're representing both sides so rather than just trying to get you into their brand they're trying to find a match between the people or the franchises they represent and who you are as a person and it sounds like they do a pretty good job of that and it goes beyond just the matchmaking because they they can consult with you as you're making those decisions along the way even once you've decided on what you what franchise you want to go with as you're getting it set up, as you're creating a relationship with a franchise or all of those things, they can coach you and, and help you along the way on that as well. So. Well said, Rodney. Let's get into our interview with John Austinson, CEO of Franbridge Consulting. Okay, we are very excited to have with us today John Austinson to talk non-food franchising. John is the CEO of Franbridge Consulting. Um, and from what I understand, it's a it's a group that does a lot of business in the franchising space. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say we stay pretty active and we're able to help a lot of folks. And like you said, we we'll 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 dabble with food, but for the most part, we believe there are easier ways to make money, and so we kind of focus our efforts and in industries uh, outside of food. Okay, so a little background for Rod and I actually had a we bought into a franchise this was how long has it been rod was it four three or four years ago yeah about four years ago okay four years ago and the good news there's good and bad here john the good news is is we can um tell all of our listeners what not to do (laughs) (laughs) because our we kind of went about it in the wrong ways it would have been really nice had i been like following you and listening to some of the stuff you're talking about before jumping into that um but on the other side of it like we have some good experience and i think we have seen the upside and the potential that exists within franchising as well. So even though our uh, experience didn't go as well as we hoped, we kind of were able to um, determine what were the, what were the problem areas. And and so if we go that route again, then certainly we'd have a better shot at it and we would work with someone like you. Uh, So anyway, this will be fun. We're excited to have the conversation because like I said, we have a a little experience in the space. Yeah. Fantastic. No. Okay. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. Let's just jump into it then, John. Tell us this. How'd you get into franchising? Yeah. You know, my background, like so many of your listeners, was in the corporate world and, and had a good run there. And 
really wasn't looking to get into franchising, but it kind of found me. So just over mm-hmm. six years ago, I had the opportunity to step in and uh, serve as president of Shelf Genie Franchise System, which is custom pull-out shelving for your kitchens and pantries. And I got the opportunity to support the day-to-day operations of hundreds of franchisees across North America, all these small business owners. And and for me, it was an eye-opening experience to see that there are a lot of ways to make money um, you know, within a given system, and it doesn't have to be food-related uh, within franchising. So um, you know, oftentimes I say franchise, people think fast food, and so that's why we really uh, you know, again, we, we're very thankful for those that do get involved in food. But again, my humble belief is there are a lot of ways to make money out there. So long story short, ended up partnering with the founder of Shelf Genie. We spun off. We've invested in franchises as franchisees ourselves. Um, we've also, uh, you know, brought on other business partners with some of those ventures as well. So, uh, you know, we've got good people running the businesses for us now. allows me to spend most of my time helping others step into business ownership as well, either full-time or what we call semi-absentee, where they keep their day job and, um, you know, get it going on the side, putting a manager in place day one. Good stuff. And I think that leads greatly into our, our next question because it, um, for a lot of people, they they look at franchising as an opportunity f- as an investment, right? So, what are the primary benefits of franchising as an investment? Yeah, you know, we work with a lot of clients that also have real estate investments. They also have other ways of, por- you know, uh, diversifying their portfolio beyond just public securities and, and public debt. Um, and so, I think it's that mindset. And you know, with Business ownership, you know, there are some tax benefits that you don't get just through normal investing. Uh, you know, they, I call it the trifecta. You know, you're building a cash flow. You also get the the write-offs from a tax standpoint. You know, you're able to write things off that you can't as a W-2. And also you're building an asset that's going to have exit value down the road if you build it halfway decently. So um, I call it the trifecta, and I think it's just a, a good opportunity. I mean, we've, we've done more deals this year than we've ever done before. We've seen more interest. Um, I think there's a lot of cash on the sidelines, as you guys know, and everyone's mm-hmm. looking for ways to diversify their uh, portfolio. So we have plenty of client case studies um, that I'm happy to jump into as well that just kind of show the different types of things that people are getting involved in. Mm. That sounds good. We'll definitely jump into that. So um, tell me this. What are, okay, so we're, we're talking about the primary benefits of ta- of franchising as an mm-hmm. investment. What are just again, we're not going to dive too deep into it, but what are the downside? What do you see as kind of the primary downside risk? And again, we're talking primarily as from an investment, realizing that there has to be some involvement, right? Yeah, absolutely. No. And I tell people if they have a great manager in place day one and they think it's going to take them five hours a week, it's probably going to take 10 or 15. You know, it, it, yeah. it's always going to take a little more effort, especially early on. Uh, but the, the benefit of franchising is that you do have that partner in the franchisor where you're tag teaming the management of that manager. They can go to them for their technical questions and for support. Um, I'd say from a downside standpoint, to answer your question, you know, I'm a member of the Entrepreneurs Organization, EO. And within EO, we have a lot of folks that are interested in franchising. Some of them are just too entrepreneurial and they want to put their thumbprints mm-hmm. all over everything. So mm-hmm. I think you know the guardrails... Um, you know, and just like every industry, I mean, not everyone is created equal. You know, there are good franchise systems and there are some that are not so good. So that's part of, you know, while we represent over 600 different brands at any given time, there's probably 50 or 60 that I feel are the best of the best. And we've got different criteria as to how we filter those. But a big piece of it comes down to that franchisor and who they are and their values and their experience and track records. So, um, you know, I think you could get involved in a franchise system where, you know, they are making changes along the way that you didn't expect, you know, in the mm-hmm. beginning. Um, and obviously there's safeguards around that. Um, 
you know, that you can put in place going in with the right amendments to your operating agreement. But, um, you know, by and large, we see the benefits greatly outweighing the cons, even from an exit standpoint and just the multiple that you get on that exit. One of our high income money hacks, the first one of our high income money hacks is to is the business owners get all the breaks. And we talk about uh, a lot of the people that are listening to us are are likely or high income earners. A lot of them are medical professionals, but there are often um, very entrepreneurial type investors, real estate investors and things like that. So I think that there is a lot of interest in franchising and the potential to do it. But I think a lot of people fear their fear is again that they're, you know, might be purchasing, getting into something that's, you know, biting off more than they could chew. Um, so we'll get into that a little bit more here in a second. Yeah. Well, uh, okay. We, oh, go ahead. I was go just going to say we work with a lot of medical professionals and attorneys across the country, and you know, other high degree professionals, and you know, and they're not looking to give up that W two income. So they do want to get mm-hmm. something going on the side. And the question that where, where the rubber meets the road is, you know, can they do it with min- minimal involvement? And a lot of times they get nervous about finding that person that they can have full confidence in to run the day to day affairs. And so that is something we do a lot of a lot of counseling yeah. in as well. That makes a lot of sense. And here, um, when we get down a little mm-hmm. further in some of our questions, we'll talk about what your process looks like and kind of vetting both the, on the franchisor side and the franchisee side. Um, that'll be good. So really quick, um, and you've hit on this a little bit, but why non-food franchising? As yeah. opposed to, again, most people, like you said, almost immediately think of the many food franchises. And some of them are really, really, I mean, many of them are incredibly successful. But from your perspective, why why non-food franchising? Yeah, and again, I'm very thankful for those who do get involved with food. But you know, some of the basic tenets as to why we focus in other areas you know, versus food, I, I think within food, it is a larger capital expense typically mm-hmm. on, on the front end. Uh, it's very location specific. I do think there's more trends and whims around uh, the food industry. Now, if you go with the Jimmy John's or, you know, one's very well established and brand recognition and that that can really serve you well. But some of these upstarts, you know, emerging brands, I think in food is a little more difficult to to prove out. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I, you know, oftentimes you have food inventory going to waste, you know, lower margins, operating hours, you can be pretty extensive, including weekends. You have large employee teams of hourly workers and, yeah, there are certainly businesses outside of food that share some of those characteristics, but there's a lot of other models out there where you can eliminate multiple <laughs> downsides of the food industry. And so, again, it's my humble belief that there are easier ways to make money mm-hmm. in full transparency. I have personally invested outside of food, and so I don't have a background in food. So that kind of leans yeah. towards my bias as well, outsider looking mm-hmm. in. Um, and we still, again, dabble in food. We've got a great yeah. food truck concept that a client of ours is signing for tomorrow, but um, you know, but it's a very different type model and kind of flies in the face of some of those traditional food uh, aspects. So while we're on that to- on the topic of kind of what direction you focus in, um, just based on listening, I know that it's also more on emerging brands more often than long-term established brands. But so kind of in that same mold, talk about a little bit why you like to focus on some of the emerging brands. I mean, for my, for my side, it's kind of seems obvious potential and opportunity, but but what are kind of the reasons that you focus on emerging brands rather than longer term, well-established brands? Yeah, it's a combination of the two. I mean, oftentimes if it's a well-established brand with one, <laughs> they're probably sold out in your area. So there is only yeah. opportunity for newer entrants to the market. So, um, yeah, but on the emerging side, you know, I think it's important. Again, not every franchisor is going to make it. And, you know, you, I look at the leadership team that they've got a strong track record. 
know, if they're more from an industry experience, you know, I want to see that they brought in franchise expertise to complement that. You know, I think that's an important dynamic that you need to have. That franchisee franchise relationship is so important. There's got, you know, if they have a small sample size from which to look at the financials, you know, we've got to make sure there's a lot of meat on the bones. So if you go with conservative pro formas, you know, there's still a lot, a lot of meat there. Um, yeah, and the, they've got to have a strong competitive advantage. So I think within the emerging brands, oftentimes they've learned from the established brands and they've said, hey, here's a way to do it a little bit differently. Here's where they're falling short in the market and so they're able to come in. And it's really interesting when you look outside of food, some of the industries that we deal with, they're, they're not branded industries. These are highly fragmented mom and pop type industries where there's not a national brand. I throw out the term insulation. It's a $53 billion market, residential and commercial insulation. Can you name one brand in insulation? Probably not. <laughs> the brand is less important there. Instead, it's all the other ways that they, they mm. differentiate themselves on the ground level. So um, I'd say the territory constraints would be number one. And then all these other reasons are good supporting reasons mm. as to why, again, we're not solely focused on emerging but we do focus on those that have that growth potential to go from 10 locations to 200 locations in two years. We see that kind of growth trajectory on a regular basis. Awesome. So let's say they have some, you have someone who uh, who's listening to the benefits and, and feels like, Hey, this is worth looking into. So what, what is the makeup of a good franchise opportunity? Yeah. You know, I think it's, it's a strong leadership. I mean, that's your business partner, you know, so I, the, the franchise or having been a franchise or myself, I put a lot of weight in that. And again, they're not all created equal. Um, the financial model is going to have a lot of meat on the bone. There's got to be a scalability factor there that even when you put a general manager in place running the day to day, you're still making a healthy return. Um, you know, I think it's easy to throw around the term competitive advantage, but when you look at industries that maybe have lower barriers to entry what are those true distincts and uniques about the business that you know aren't just different but are reasons for that consumer to pick you over another one um, you know we look at things such as the, the marketing teams in place and the technology stack and you know, how much legwork are you as the owner going to have to do on your end versus being able to step into something day one and turn the key put a manager in place you know um, and so the ramp up period we look at the competition we look at from a macro standpoint what's going on. I always say that, you know, regardless of the economy, people are going to spend on the things they care about. They're going to spend on their homes, their health, their kids, their pets, their aging parents. Are, are the businesses you're looking at from an opportunity standpoint catering to those? Are they essential services? Are they needs-based or more discretionary? So, um, yeah, there's a lot of different dynamics that we kind of bring into play, um, you know, and certainly the competitive makeup in the local market is one of them. Hmm. And what type of people make good franchisees and maybe maybe the question is is there a specific like skill set that you've found makes up a good you know owner of a franchise yeah you know i, I think there's some uh you know so we, we always love military veterans they've hmm. learned how to follow systems they're disciplined they're hardworking. you know franchisors love supporting the military uh, and oftentimes uh, they'll yeah. provide uh, discounts um you know, we're having been a franchisor. When I looked at our top franchise owners across the sea of owners across North America, they were the top ones were the ones that followed the system. And that sounds so cliche. But again, <laughs> if they came in and we said, "Hey, let's market to households with average incomes of one hundred thousand to one hundred fifty, and we'll help you do it," and they said, "Oh no, no, we're we're the smartest guy in the room. We used to run a marketing agency. We know what we're doing. Let's go market to those you know earning half a million and more." 
well, that may just not work, you know, even though on paper it seems like it would. And so I, I've seen kind of the downsides of getting a little too creative. Now, any good franchisor is going to want you to go out there and do a little bit of testing on your own, but ultimately following the system. And again, that's cliche, but I've seen it. Um, so as far as the backgrounds, I think someone that has managed people, that has dealt with people, even on the front end of the business, a salesperson, they, while they're not going to necessarily run sales on the tip of the point for that business, they know what they're looking for in a salesperson. They know how to incentivize and, and compensate them. They know how to motivate them. And so I think just having that general business background, I do see some medical professionals that say, hey, we've never been in business before. Mm, yeah. And so then it comes down to, well, is there an interest in learning business? I've got a great doctor up in Maryland right now. He's like, I want to learn business. I want to learn from a great established franchise source. That's who we have them talking to. Mm. Um, so I think a willingness to follow a system, it's the ability to learn, it's ability to you know, delegate and not try to do everything yourself and really understanding your role um, is what it comes down to. Okay, so you've mentioned a few times uh, this whole idea of the, the franchise or the team being critical. And then now obviously the the franchisee plugging into the system, trusting the system and using it. So I want to dig a little bit deeper on that. What specifically are you looking for in that team? Like you want a good team, you want a strong team, you want, like you mentioned experience mm -hmm. uh, in, in that specific area. But really, if, if I'm, especially if I'm now analyzing a few different franchising options, uh, what would make one stand above the others? Yeah. You know, I look at, um, we've had some clients buy into a floor covering business down in, in the West Palm area. Well, the president of that franchise system, it's an emerging brand, but the president used to be the chief operating officer for one of the fastest growing brands in America. Now that sounds great, but that fastest growing brand ran into some hurdles of growing too fast. Hmm. And in their case, they couldn't you know, procure the trucks fast enough for the franchisees. And so I look at that and I say, did he learn from his experience and everything he said to me, you know, indicates that he has. And so, you know, I look at the team to say, what is their track record? You know, what have they learned along the way? Um, you know, oftentimes I think about the marketing team. I mean, that's someone you're going to be interacting mm -hmm. with a lot. Can they drive leads at a low cost of customer acquisition in a services-based business, for instance, which is a lot of them, you know, they need to be able to you know, acquire customers. Ultimately, if in your local community, if you're willing to get involved in the Chamber of Commerce and go sponsor the Little League Baseball team, I mean, any ground roots organic efforts is going to help the cause and drive down, down the cost of uh, customer acquisition. But having that strong marketing team where they take that burden off of you and you don't have to go learn Google you know, analytics and, and Facebook advertising, you know, that's going to be a benefit. In some cases, they'll even have a call center. Some call centers are great. Some are not, but some that are first class out there, if they can take that burden off of you having to staff that, that's huge. And so, yeah, there's a lot of different dynamics around it, but ultimately it starts at the top because no matter how good the team is below that, you've got to have a strong leader if that team's going to stay or that leader that can replace the team if they're not getting the job done. So a question here, what about long distance investing in franchises? So... <clears throat> Could it make sense to invest uh, if I'm I'm here in Salt Lake and there's a great opportunity in Atlanta, Georgia? How do you see that working? Does it ever work? If it's your brother-in-law in Atlanta and you trust him and you're willing to invest in him, then no problem. But I think it provides one additional variable to getting a business off the ground. We've only had one customer or client that's no longer still in business and he lived three hours outside his market. 
Well, his challenge was he didn't have any connections in that market. It was a business mm -hmm. where some organic would have played in a well as a mosquito business. Um, <laughs> and that's a competitive space. And it was a cold spring and all these factors. But yeah. if he was on the ground, I think it would have made a difference. And a few months in, he said, hey, this is too much work. I'm going to throw in the towel. Um, that being said, I look at Nathan Bocock, a client of mine in Columbia, South Carolina. He's become the largest franchisee of two men in a truck. Operates about a $30 million business, operates in 10 markets, only 40 years old. Well, every year he and I do a deal together where, you know, he'll say, hey, John, what's the best thing for my situation now? And I'll introduce him to one. He'll put a young guy from his church or from his community over the business, give him a little bit of equity and say, go make us proud. Well, largely these are in other markets, not in Columbia, South Carolina. For him, he's got confidence in that guy. The guy's got skin in the game. Um, it, it's worked out very well. So it can be done, mm -hmm. but I think it's the right structure. I think more of a lower investment type opportunity could make sense um it, it, and then it comes down to the franchise or to just you know, having one that's going to be supportive that's open to that arrangement that's going to provide the uh the necessary resources to that manager so the burden's off of you yeah that makes sense and one thing that may make a difference in that example you gave is if they already have locations and then they're expanding beyond that it, it was that the case with this this gentleman in in columbia was yeah, well, he, he expanding in franchises he already had, or was he branching out into other franchises? These were branching into other franchises. Okay. Yeah. 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 Early on with two minute truck. I mean, he went from South Carolina to Houston to Virginia, you know, all these different markets. Got it. So both. Got it. But, he, but he was experienced and I, I'm sure that mm -hmm. makes it right. He was experienced mm -hmm. in franchising in general and can use a lot of those same principles and model, even if it's in a different franchise system. Yeah. Is that fair. Yeah. 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 And it, it's totally fair. And we've got, clients that that have started multiple businesses outside of franchising to say hey been there done that we're ready for our next rodeo but we don't want to reinvent the wheel you know let's go with franchising <laughs> yeah. this time so i think there's something that's right for each season and again with that portfolio mindset and understanding i mean we've got some clients that say hey i may not be in franchising forever but i'd like to kind of get my start there build my first business there learn some good practices and disciplines and then i can potentially parlay those into other opportunities down the road yeah so as you look at uh people who who do uh, branch out into, into multiple locations, are there certain parts of the country that are more or less desirable to, to buy in? Yeah, you know, so I'm based here in Atlanta. I'd say franchising in large part does start on the East Coast and move West, if you were to look at it that direction. Part of that is because California and Washington are 14, or two of the 14 registration states. Oftentimes franchises go into New York and Illinois and Washington and California. Some of those places where there's just more challenges to getting a business going. They move into those later. That being said, we do a lot of deals in New York. We've done mm -hmm. multiple deals there in the last couple of months. We've done several in California. So still on the ground, there's a different level of activity, but from a macro standpoint, um, you know, but it's markets like Salt Lake is flying right now. You know, the, the key markets in Texas, Nashville, Raleigh, Charlotte, Atlanta, Florida, those markets go extremely fast for good opportunities. Um, you know, and for good reason, that's where people are moving. That's where the activity is happening. But Despite what the news headlines say, we st we're still doing deals in Seattle, Washington and other areas that get negative headlines. So yeah. um, it, it's encouraging to me just when I look across the country to see the interest in entrepreneurship as well as the level of activity going on on the ground. It really flies in the face of everything we hear from the talking heads of the media. You've hit on this. You mentioned that there's only been one franchise you've worked with that has kind of bailed out. Um, which means your track record's really good. So maybe maybe we'll differentiate in two parts. 
one, what's the success ratio generally speaking in franchising? So outside of your organization, but just kind of industry wide and, um, and then maybe hit on this, the reasons that you've had as much success, um, with your team specifically with your group. Yeah. You know, the IFA international franchise association would say 92% of those that purchase a franchise are still in business, you know, three years later, um, oh, which wow. obviously is a good bit higher than in traditional startups. Um, sure. and something that we cover in my book is just, we kind of make the comparison between startup versus uh, franchise and, you know, buying a business versus a franchise where the trade-offs and the pros and cons uh, between those, you know, with our process, you know, ultimately we, we, we try to make it easier for for someone that's looking for a franchise. If you go out and you Google, I mean, franchises, you're going to see every brand putting their best foot forward, and you're not going to see what's going on behind the scenes. And you're going to see some franchises out there that have five locations. Well, turns out they've got another 125 that are signed that haven't hit the website yet. So um, I've seen it firsthand, you know, examples like that. Um, so what we do with clients is, you know, we'll have a call, get to know them, have them fill out some basic information, um, you know, Oftentimes they've heard podcasts or read my book or, you know, found, you know, some, some other information. So we have some intelligent conversations. Um, but then our next step is we'll take them through opportunities. I, I'll bring them up on a Zoom webcast and we'll walk through eight, nine, 10 opportunities that are available in their market that meet all the criteria that we've discussed with them and that, um, you know, that we see resonating with others. I mean, we do more deals than 99% of other brokers in the U.S. As a result, we see great deal flow and we know what's resonating with what backgrounds and why. And so we're able to give a lot of anecdotal feedback in addition to just the business overview. From there, they would say, hey, here are the three or four that we want to talk with. We had introduced them to the franchisors. Oftentimes after that first call, they're going to say, hey, John, that one's definitely not for us. Mm -hmm. But so oftentimes the one that was number four in their mind moves up to number one because something comes up on that call and they say, I never thought about it that way. And that's when the magic starts happening. They say, I want to go in deep. I want a secret shop the competitors in my market here. I want to, you know, it really dig in. And, and so the franchise world will then take you through, you know, calls on financials, the franchise disclosure document. They'll introduce you to other franchisees. You get to do what's called validation, talk to other owners here from their experience and ask them questions, talk with the founder of the business. Ultimately, if things are going well and you're feeling good about them and they're feeling good about you, then they'll fly you in, um, you know, take you out to dinner and then you know, spend a full day with their team, getting all your questions answered and really making sure that it's a good marriage both ways. Um, you know, through the process, we like to have touch bases with our clients. You know, we can bring in other opportunities as they start to build that framework in their mind of what they're looking for. There may be other ones we haven't considered yet. Um, you know, we've got great funding partners. We've got a franchise attorney. We've got a recruiter they can use. We've got a coach. Um, so we try to build this ecosystem to support them through the process. Awesome. Okay. So now let's, let's look at someone who, uh, who got in, they made a decision. Now they're in, what are some of the common pitfalls that you see? Yeah. You know, entrepreneurship, I remember a franchise that I invested in, uh, about two years ago, it's called the driveway company. And uh, this guy that, that I partnered with that was running the business his first time in, in business ownership. So I had to kind of coach him and play therapist, mm -hmm. you know, in those first couple of weeks and months. And, I remember he called me one day and he said, Hey, John, phone's not ringing. I'm getting nervous here. A week later, he said, Hey, the phone won't stop ringing. I don't know how I'm going to keep up. And mm -hmm. Next week it was, Hey, I'm running all these appointments, but I'm not closing the deals. The next week, Hey, I'm yeah. closing the deals. I can't keep up. So, you know, it, it's, it's, I think for a first time business owner, you know, it's, it's really leaning into uh, your support group, whether it be not just with a franchisor, but you know, if you have a, 
mastermind group or, you know, others, uh, you know, just, you don't feel like you're in it alone. I think taking comfort from those that have been there and done it before, mm -hmm. um, to know that, Hey, this is very normal. And you just kind of keep taking one step at a time. Um, so that's kind of a broad way to answer it, but from a pitfall standpoint, I'd say not leaving, you know, not leaving enough cash in the bank that if you do need to lean in and, you know, you don't want to cut back on marketing. If all of a sudden mm -hmm. things get tough, you want to lean into that, uh, typically. So I'd say cutting marketing would be a, easy pitfall because you need marketing to grow the business. Um, I'd say maybe getting too excited about that first hire and not, you know, all of a sudden they've got this institutional knowledge. They went to training. Well, if they're not the right fit and you figure that out, you should have fired them yesterday. <laughs> you know, don't, don't hang on to them. So um, yeah. you know, I think those would be two that kind of come to mind off the bat. Yeah, that's great. So we mentioned Rod and I owned a, a day spa franchise, right? And um, we made, I, I, I haven't you guys seem like the day spa kind of guys. <laughs> I'm, I'm more of the day spa guy. Rod's okay. not so much. He didn't spend nearly as much time there as I did. Um, but we, we made at least two critical mistakes, two, maybe more. So I'll say at least two critical mistakes. Um, so maybe you can help people like us avoid these two critical mistakes. So the first one that we met, we messed up on is we relied too much on the info on the information that the franchisor was giving us. Right. So we, we were looking at a few businesses, but like that was the only franchise system and we didn't do probably enough due diligence and franchising in general before and look you at other before we purchased. So we kind of relied very heavily on the franchisor who obviously has an interest in us buying into the franchise, but um, that was one pitfall or kind of one mistake we made. And then the other one um, was that we we thought that we were getting into a much more passive situation than we actually were. So those were just kind of two things that as I look back, we're like, oh, we, we messed up on that. Talk a little bit about how to avoid those couple of mistakes. Yeah. You know, every now and then we'll have a client say, I only want to talk to one brand and you know they'll go all the way with them. But we strongly, strongly encourage them to talk to multiple. I'll have some clients that end up on calls with literally up to a dozen different brands over the course mm -hmm. of our process. And, you know, I do think having perspective and, be, you know, something will come up on one call. It's like, Oh, they didn't mention this. Mm -hmm. Let me ask it on this call. So I think yeah. just like anything in life, I mean, having variety and being able to understand and, and being open-minded um, to that and, you know, not burning the ships and not getting too married to, uh, you know, one thing that I've, I tell clients oftentimes, you know, the franchise salesperson oftentimes is, is who they're working with through the process. Mm -hmm. Ultimately, once you're in that franchise system, whether you like that franchise salesperson or not, it doesn't matter. It's that mm -hmm. franchise or relationship that's most important. So, um, and, and I've had multiple clients say, hey, I like this franchise system a little bit more, but I really like the leader of this other franchise system. He's a straight shooter. I trust him. Um, and that's kind of what their gut's telling them. So again, I think just perspective, you know, if it's an emerging brand and you have a small sample size, you know, do a lot of secret shopping in your market, you know, get get to know that industry. I'm going to talk to those that have been down the road before. I mean, talk to people like myself that, that have you know, seen a lot of situations. Um, as far as, you know, being a little more involved, I do hear that. And I do think that sometimes opportunities can be sold as, hey, this is almost passive, you know, semi-passive, you know. And that's why I said it's always going to take a little bit more time than you anticipate, especially in the early going. So those are questions that we go through is how much time do you really have per week to put into this? Um, you know, who can you lean on? Is your spouse going to be involved? Um, you know, do you have a brother-in-law that you can you know, kind of get involved? I mean, or, and so we cover all of that because it, it's not totally passive. Now, there's two totally passive opportunities out there that I know of where the franchisor will actually run the business for you 
requires two hours a month, but most are not hmm. that. Most uh, are probably okay. 10 to 15 hours a week. That's a minimum. nice tease. So if you, if you're intrigued by that, <laughs> then you're going to want to talk to John about those two that yeah. only we, require two hours a month. Yeah. We just had two doctors actually buy, uh, buy one, one of them in Raleigh. So I, I won't get into the details on those, but yeah, I, I, cool. I, I would be interested to see that model may start, be, you know, becoming a little more popular because that is the number one ask is, Hey, we want to buy into a business with great financials, mm-hmm. least amount of time that we have to put in and the least number of employees. And so you're threading that needle constantly, um, trying to make trade-offs as well. So I didn't put this in my notes, but I want to make sure I touch on it. Um, what, what are kind of the opportunity from a financial standpoint, right? Like maybe go through with an average type of deal that you might see and what type of money somebody could make based on the, based on what the, and again, the investment in cap from a capital standpoint, but from also a time standpoint, what could someone expect or reasonably expect to be able to get back again, realizing it's every situation is very different. Yeah. You know, I'd say 75% of our placements fall between 150,000 and 300,000 from an all in investment standpoint. And that includes working capital franchise fees, startup cost. Um, probably a third of our clients will use cash to fund that. A third will use SBA loans and, and leverage. Obviously those rates have gone up some. And then a third will use either a portfolio loan or a HELOC or another means of, uh, you know, using a retirement fund and self-directing it through a ROBS program, for instance. Yeah. Um, you know, certainly, we, you know, car washes and laundromats, I mean, we're talking north of a million, but, you know, quite a few are in that 150 to 300 range of the ones that people have been, been buying into. Um, you know, a lot of the franchises may average revenue around 500 to 800,000, but those that really stand out, I've had six clients buy into a gutter business, including a Wall Street attorney, including a couple of doctors. Um, the item 19 for that business and it's detailed, they break out the PL for every one of their locations. Um, and they've got a lot of locations that they're averaging 1.7 million in revenue. I mean, these are audited numbers. Oh, wow. They were 1.2 the prior year. You're seeing great comp growth. Um, 1.7 and they're doing that at close to a 30% bottom line margin. So I always tell my clients, what if we only do two thirds as well? What if we only do half as well? Is there still enough meat on the bone to, to mm-hmm. justify, you know, from that on that one, all an investment right around 200,000 for two territories, mm-hmm. which equates to the item 19. Um, there's one right now that we're excited about that has somewhat similar financials. It's, you know, you think about the aging population and uh, right now, you know, 10,000 people turning 65 every day. We all know about the silver tsunami. Well, there's a shortage of caregivers, you know, and people are wanting to age in place. And so even though it's a competitive space, you have all these providers providing caregiving services, they're having a tough time recruiting and retaining employees. That's the big challenge. And yet there's overwhelming demand in the market. And so we're working with one one right now where the guy, he'd started a franchise system, had 700 locations in the senior care space, took all that knowledge and said, hey, there's a better way to go about it now. It's created more of a recruitment model where the caregiver works directly for the um, you know, for the family, but you're playing the matchmaker, you're doing all the payroll process, you're doing everything else, but you get out of a lot of the regulations. Mm-hmm. And so when for you, you're making more money, the caregiver's making more money, and the family has more control, the caregiver gets more hours. I won't go too far down this path, but it's a win-win-win. It's a better mousetrap in an industry that desperately needs that. And this is a smaller sample size in this case, but you know they're doing 1.7 million in revenue ironically same as the cutters um i think it's just a tick below 1.7 and they're doing that at closer to about 325 on the bottom line um 1.7 includes the caregiver salaries and everything 
mm-hmm. you're breaking down to that 325. So, you know, there's money to be had. I'd say oftentimes, you know, the percentages we see, you know, maybe operating margins of 15 to 30% on a lot of the opportunities. And when you extrapolate that over your all in investment on the front end, um, you know, those returns look very attractive because 15, 30%, you know, of the revenue then translates over the investment. It could be ex- extremely high. However, what are you giving up? You're giving up some time because it's yeah. not a totally passive investment. And, the, and that just varies so much by the franchise system and so much by who you put in place. I mean, I've seen so many successful case studies where clients have a, again, a brother-in-law or someone from their church or someone that they trust day one that they can put in and maybe give them 10% equity. And that makes all the difference. They don't have to think about the business almost ever. But then others that are saying, going out on the general market and hiring someone, yeah, 50-50 chance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as people are getting into franchise, uh, getting getting into the franchise, what are the most common ways to finance? Yeah, it, again, I'd say cash has become more common just because of lack of good investments of out there. Yeah. SBA loans have probably gone down a little bit, but I'd still say probably a third of our clients are using SBA loans, and you can always pay those off early. Um, you know, historically in franchising, using a ROBS program where you can self-direct your IRA or 401k. And there's a few steps you have to walk through on an ongoing maintenance program with that mm-hmm. um, to, to allow for the tax, you know, not having the tax consequences. But ROBS programs are very common. Um, I'm a big believer in portfolio loans. If you've got your assets in a non-retirement taxable brokerage account, I mean, you're going to get a great rate there because it's collateral backed. I personally do that. And then I leverage it and arbitrage into other investments. Uh, I know you guys do the same. Um, you know, And then HELOCs, of course, you can still get lower rates than you can with an SBA loan. So those are some of the most common. Perfect. Can you just give us a couple of examples? And, and we've talked a little bit about this from a, you gave a good example uh, when I talked about returns specifically, but just maybe a couple of examples of successful um franchises that you've been involved with yeah absolutely um yeah the the driveway company right now i mean that's a beautiful cash flow and business very low overhead we've got just a couple of w-2s and then we have 1099s you know that we outsource a lot of the labor to again in in georgia in a business friendly state um you know we we've got a pool cleaning business everyone's got a pool now that you know you can't help but uh, uh need the pool service on an ongoing basis that one's been successful you know, one that's been a little bit more challenging for us, and I probably wouldn't do again, was in home cleaning. I, you know, that, mm. I think that's just from a labor side, it is a little bit tougher, and I think it's a very commoditized space. Um, you know, I look at an example that, uh, that I'm looking to go in on with a couple of clients because we've had other clients be very successful. It's a dumpster business, mm. and mm. right now we're seeing people they're loving those cash flowing, understandable, non-sexy businesses it's the gutters it's insulation it's dumpsters i mean throughout the southeast and now they've gone to texas i've got a client that's getting ready to buy in phoenix in this dumpster business they go in they're not competing with the biggest players with the waste managements and the rubicons instead they're doing it's more of a b2c and it's working with small contractors you know remodeling and roofers and such and they've gone in and gained market share and they do a couple million in every market a very healthy margin with only two employees one driving the truck, one handling the customer service. So, you know, businesses like that, I think are attractive to people where they can leverage, um, you know, not having a large team, but instead, you know, whether it be a capital asset or, or something along those lines. Hmm. Okay. So once somebody is interested, what does the process look like from okay, maybe initial phone call with you? Let's just say someone moves all the way through that process. Just kind of what does it look like in general? 
Yeah. So starting off, we'll have a brief conversation. I'll ask some questions, get to know each other, have you fill out a brief questionnaire. Probably takes 10 minutes. Uh, we would then carve out 45 minutes where I can take you through opportunities and share my screen. And we'll talk through, you know, on average, about 10 opportunities there in your local market. From there, you'd say, here are the ones that I want to speak with. Oftentimes, three or four. We don't want you to be too overwhelmed. You can hit pause and eliminate any at any given time. Um, but the franchisors will take you through financials, through uh, the business overview, through the marketing, through the operations, through the franchise disclosure document. They'll introduce you to other franchisees for that validation that I talked about. Talk to the founder of the business. Um, ultimately, you would go fly in and meet with them at their office and really get to know their team, break bread with them You know, the night before. Oftentimes, we like to have touch base calls with our clients every week or two where we'll serve as a sounding board and it may be that as you build a framework in your mind of what you're looking for, there's something we didn't look at in the beginning that now makes sense to you. Now that you know you're a little more targeted in on, hey, actually, I need a business that has these characteristics. Uh, so we can bring others back into play. So it can be an iterative process. Uh, but the goal here is to give you as much exposure, not only of that one that you're looking to purchase potentially, but others as well. So you're confident that you chose them the right one and that, that it makes the most sense. Um, you know, from the time that, you know, you move through the whole process, I'd say it's usually between 45 and 75 days. And so there at that 60 day mark, let's say you go through the confirmation day, you say, hey, I'm ready to sign. You've had your franchise attorney, our franchise attorney, you know, if you need review the agreement with you from there, it's up to you when you want to go through training, when you want to launch the business. It may be that you want to do it the next month and maybe you need a few months. Um, so we kind of have a flexible timeline around that, but no, it's fun. And I, I get my validation when I have clients come back and buy additional locations. I mean, I, the vast majority do that oftentimes within 12 to 18 awesome. months, which is encouraging um, as well as when they refer their, their, their I keep hitting on there, but their infamous yeah. brother-in-law, you know, when they, when they make that <laughs> recommendation, um, that, that's what gets me excited where I get validation. Yeah. Very cool. Um, before we call it today, tell us about your book and yeah. maybe how we can get in touch with you. Yeah, absolutely. No, and, and I'd say for any of your listeners, I uh, would love to engage. And as a first step, if you want to come out to our website to frambridgeconsulting.com, you know, we'll, we'll um, you know, sign up for our monthly newsletter. We put out some great content and we'll get a digital copy of the book to you. you know, feel free to go on Amazon as well. If you'd like to buy the physical copy or the audible copy, um, all proceeds go to uh, a nonprofit that we really believe a lot in uh, that's helping entrepreneurs uh, throughout the world and in impoverished communities. So, um, yeah, if you choose to purchase it, know, know your funding is going to a good Very place. Cool. But, you know, excited about the book. It encapsulates a lot of what we've seen out there in the market on the landscape as well as the how-tos. And uh, we've gotten a great response so far. It's only been out about a month now. And, uh, yeah. Awesome. I'm glad to have it out the door. So. Okay. say Put it up there again. What's it called? Yeah, it's called Non-Food Franchising, The Better Path to Business Ownership. Awesome. Non-food franchising, the better path to ownership. I like it, John. This has been a lot of fun. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, we appreciate it. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Enjoyed it, guys. Thank you for listening to the Money Insights Podcast. To learn more about the financial and business strategies discussed in this show, please visit moneyinsights.net. The views and opinions expressed on the Money Insights Podcast are not intended to be individual financial, tax, or legal advice. Always consult with the appropriate advisor before making financial decisions. And if you're enjoying the show, please feel free to rate, subscribe, and leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. This will help others find the show and learn wealth-building strategies for themselves. Thanks again for tuning in, and we'll catch you in the next episode.